The Murder Shelf Book Club contains disturbing content related to real-life crimes. Listener discretion is advised. When the initial reports came out about Joan Driver's body being found, she had thought it was a copycat. Coggins was all too familiar with the bike path rapist. She was one of his victims. All of the other times he had struck since he raped her, she swore she felt it coming. She maintained that she could almost feel him growing itchy. She could feel the pressure building. From the Bike Path Killer by Matthew Beaker and Michael Beebe. Welcome to the Murder Shelf Book Club. Cuddle up a little closer, lovey mine. Cuddle up and be Welcome back, Murder Bookies, to episode 35, Tip the Scales, on the Bike Path Killer by Mackie Becker and Michael Beebe. This is a difficult true crime story, so brace yourselves. Well, they all are, but you know what I mean. This one's especially tough. I'm your host, Jill, and I have a true crime book club in the greater Philadelphia area, and I love discussing true crime, where I apply my 30 years experience as a psychology teacher who studied and taught about serial murder. I decided to turn my love of reading and fascination of true crime into a podcast so I can share these stories with you. Each month, I will discuss a book that I pulled off my murder shelf in the first two episodes. No boring timeline here. I present the story from the author's point of view. In the third episode of this series, called Second Cast, I delve into the path not taken, the threads not pulled, add analysis and updates to the case that is compelling. These episodes are a little different and can shake things up. So if you haven't listened to episode 34, you really need to do that first. It's important if you want to get what's going on. It's a complicated case, lots and lots of moving parts, and a lot of names. I'm sorry, but it is a long, involved case. Murder bookies in Costa Rica. I can see you. You are incredible. And Italy jumping in. Woo. I said, it fills my heart to know that you're out there and caring enough to listen to this podcast. Send me an email on your thoughts to jill at murdershelfbookclub.com. Tell me what you think. And that goes for all of you because it truly matters to me. All right, sharing time. I want to remember one of my favorite murder bookies, Melissa Wharton Potts Rizzo, who recently passed away after a valiant battle with cancer. A true warrioress who loved true crime and the Murder Shelf Book Club. She was also a personal friend in real life. She gave me the best podcast improvement advice from episode one all the way through 29. What a wonderful ray of light Melissa was, and I cherish her memory. Rest well, Murder Bookie, your legacy is felt by me every single day. Okay, so where were we? In episode 34, Runners Beware, we began to get a sense about the serial rapist turned serial killer and how dangerous he was. His modus operandi, called the M.O., how he attacks, rapes, and murders. A task force of all the involved law enforcement agencies, municipal PD, sheriff's department, state police, and FBI, are on this case after the 2006 death of Joan Diver. 
the first attack by the bike path killer after a 12-year absence. Task force members began arriving on November 17th, this is 2006, facing an avalanche of tips. Amherst PD Lieutenant Joseph Lacourt catalogued the tips by importance and usability and then divided them up among the team. Some tips ranged from pointless to bizarre to actually useful. One woman came in saying she believed her husband was the bike path killer. Seated in the conference room, the court asked her to explain, and leaning in, she whispered, He touches me when I'm sleeping. LaCourt and Amherst detective Ray Klemsek couldn't look at each other for fear of bursting into laughter. They said that they would look into it and escorted her out. Hey, you only need the one tip to be the tip so they all get a look-see. Detective Alan Rosensky let his fellow task force members know that the Erie County Sheriff's Office would be working with the State Probation Office to try to round up as many parolees as possible who had failed to give a DNA sample. State law had been passed the previous summer in New York, mandating that anyone on probation had to submit a DNA swab as a condition of their release. Those not in compliance could be returned to jail. And maybe the killer was among these. Remember, it's a 12-year gap. Was he in jail? I mean, is that one of the possibilities? Sure. As he watched the news conference on the diver DNA matching the bike path killer, Ray Clemensic wasn't surprised. How anyone thought this wasn't the bike path killer, he pondered. She'd been strangled to death by a double ligature on a bike path on the anniversary of Lindy Allen's murder. So come on, folks, think. Ray was having a rough year himself, though. In that spring of 2006, his sister, the sister, had been murdered. Sister Karen Kulminsek was fiercely devoted to nonviolence as she ran a halfway house in a church building with her colleague, Father John Bisnett, who had been beaten to death. Sister Karen felt it was a fitting tribute to his memory to help ex-cons as they transitioned from prison to life outside. One of these ex-cons, Craig Lynch, decided to steal Sister Karen's cell phone so he could buy crack cocaine. He was in her room when Karen entered, and he beat her to death on Good Friday. Klimsek had been devastated by his sister's death, but the new task force gave him something to think about, flooding him with memories of working on this case. That is just so sad. What a loss. How many Sister Karen could have helped just remains unknown. Shortly after the rape of the cheerleader, the Buffalo PD alerted Amherst that they put a man in jail with a history of rapes, but he had sworn he had nothing to do with this teenager's rape. When the team was shown a photo array, she picked this man out right away. Checking his DNA, it did not match. More dead ends. A tip came in that the rapist was playing bingo Wednesday nights at a Catholic church in Riverside. Klimsack and Amherst detective Robert Brown went undercover. Walking into bingo, the entire crowd stared at them, the only men in the room. Trying to be inconspicuous, they continued to see the ladies staring at them. They were determined, however, to wait for their suspect, and they began to play bingo. All of a sudden, B3, the caller said. And the woman next to Detective Brown jumps up yelling, Hey, he's got bingo! He's got bingo! Brown wanted to sink into the floor. 
as he was handed $40 in winnings. Recognize that this top-secret undercover bingo mission was a bust, yeah, they kind of inquired, like, all right, what time is uh, bingo over? And they learned that there were refreshments during the break. So at this point, they planned to just sneak out, and they thought they were succeeding until a woman says, hey, how come you're leaving? You have a lucky card. Brown turns around and gives the lucky card to her. As they're going out, Klimsack overhears one woman saying, I think they're gay. The detectives laugh their asses off. But the lead on the priest, unfortunately, was a dud. And there would be many more false leads that just pittered out as they sought the serial rapist killer. So the parolee sweep begins. They picked up a man who skipped out on court appearance just before the DNA swab was to happen. His birthday also happened to be September 29th, the day that Joan Diver and Lindy Allen were killed. But the truth was, this seemed just way too easy. It wasn't him. The process for recording their notes, having them transcribed, and shared kicks in. Amherst Captain Timothy Green looked them over and determined what to do with each mini-investigation. With only two desks to be shared, everyone got to know each other really quickly. They also came to believe that the way to crack this case would be focusing on the Joan Diver murder. They had an anomaly here. The killer had driven Joan's car. That had not happened anywhere previously. Two town of Clarence workers told them that they had seen a white Ford truck in the lot with Joan's SUV that day, confirming what Stephen Driver had said. After Thanksgiving, the court appealed to the woman in the killer's life. He is hiding in plain sight. He could marry, have a girlfriend, Look at the dates of the crimes. Had they seen their loved ones that day? If he disappeared, did he have a good explanation? Had he been acting strangely at all? Issues that disturbed them. All right, the 12-year gap made no sense. He hadn't moved from the area and then returned to kill Joan. But he may have been attacking women from elsewhere. So they take their investigation national and international. In Canada, just across from Niagara Falls, five sex workers had been murdered over a decade. One of the victims was discovered in early 2006. But unlike our guy, they had been shot. But the chaos force still had to cover all bases. They also met with America's Most Wanted and ran into problems when the show gave out the phone number of one of the victims to a TV reporter. Oh, come on now. Really? But they still needed national exposure. So they worked past this. A victim spoke on camera, face obscured. Now an adult, she described the attack in the vacant junkyard. She told them all the details, how the garrote, a wire electrical cord was used, how he warned her not to fight. It'll be worse if I do more, she explained. Asked why she thought he had spared her life, the woman answered, quote, I think because I did what he wanted to do. I couldn't fight as much as a grown woman could fight. I think he might have gotten frustrated with me, the fact that I was a virgin, and don't think he could perform everything he wanted to do, end quote. Oh, God, this poor woman. This poor woman. It's just so awful what she's endured, all of these victims. Rosansky, Moaning, and Dennis Delano from the Buffalo PD flew to Washington, D.C. on December 2nd to participate in a live show. 
Tips came in from Atlanta, Georgia to Ottawa, Canada. Then everything changed. The head of the county forensic lab, Dr. John Simish and Paul Mazur, experts in DNA, did a presentation to the task force. What clues did his DNA reveal? Simish explained that genetically, the bike path killer had a high probability of being Hispanic. This piece of information could possibly narrow the suspect pool or at least prioritize who was investigated. Despite the DNA showing that Joan Diver's killer was the bike path rapist, some of the police still lingered over husband Stephen Diver. He seemed like he was hiding something, so they decided to interview him once again. And Stephen cooperated, speaking with Chief Investigator Ed Monin and State Police Investigator Josh Keats. But just a look at Stephen, it was clear he wasn't the bike path killer. He was far too young. Ed and Josh came away from the interview convinced that Diver's behavior had been badly misinterpreted due to stress. Stephen left after being assured that he was cleared of any suspicion. Finally. Meanwhile, the tips kept pouring in, causing tension and frustration. The expert cold case detectives were bogged down chasing tips. But that's not where their superpower was. And the fights that ensued were not healthy for the task force. There was a real fear here, too, that the bike path pillar would strike again. While they were all buried under tips, this guy struck in the warmer months and winter was ebbing. Something had to give. It was Erie County Special Services Chief Scott Petronic who had the great idea for a new location. It was directly across the street from the Central Police Servicing Building, a one-story building that the county had recently purchased, and it was empty. Got the sheriff's okay and the task force began setting up shop in their new home with more space, better ability to organize, and see the forest through the trees. Next was finding any surveillance footage in the area where Joan's body and SUV had been found, something Stephen Diver had suggested right after Joan went missing. It had never been followed up on. Josh Keith's state police partner, homicide investigator Chris Weber, was brought in. Weber went from store to store, eventually finding a mobile gas station and an M&T bank that had the September 29th footage saved. After hours of watching the tape, Weber spied a blue Ford SUV matching Jones exactly, pull into the gas station, loop around, and turn onto Main Street. The license plate wasn't clear, nor who was driving it, and unfortunately enhancing the image wouldn't be helpful. At the same time, Amherst PD got a tip about the white truck Stephen Diver and the grounds workers had seen parked by Jones SUV. A man said he snapped a photo of the white truck and wrote down the truck's license plate. Yes. All right, was this the break in the case that they needed? Tracking down the lead, Ed Monin didn't actually believe the driver was the killer, but maybe he had seen him. Maybe he could give a good description that could help identify him, produce a new composite. Running the plate, the truck owner worked at a chicken processing plant right where Joan's body had been found. He had seen nothing suspicious on September 29th. Another lead checked off. Stephen Driver was still reeling from the loss of Joan, but for the first time he had been told he was no longer unsuspicion. 
a phenomenal feeling. He had never spoken to the media that had labeled him uncooperative. He hired a lawyer to handle the police and prosecutors who had bungled the search for Joan. Driver told the authors, quote, Our kids had just lost their mother. If there was a mistake in the investigation, it could have resulted in my arrest, and then the kids would be parentless. I don't think the media ever considered how I might behave in my situation, assuming that I was innocent. That's just not as interesting. A grieving husband is a dime a dozen. What should victims' families do? Should they get on TV and try to convince the public that they're innocent? Should they really have to? Should they have to fight a war of words in a time in the worst imaginable world? End quote. Hey, I agree with Stephen 100% here. He packs a punch and he's speaking the truth. Yes, by all means, investigate the crime. Look into the spouse. Look into the partner thoroughly. But follow the evidence. Do not make up crap that satisfies your preconceived notions. That's how innocent people wind up behind bars. And we need a faster, more efficient way of getting them out when we realize this. Yeah, there's a reason I'm mentioning this. Christine Mazur, whose mother, May Jane Mazur, was a bike path killer victim, was focused on her grandmother, Elizabeth Phillips. Elizabeth had raised Christine as her own daughter after May Jane's death. Elizabeth was now enduring round after round of chemo and radiation for her colon cancer, and Christine feared she was going to lose another mother who had stepped in after May Jane's murder, picking up Christine from school, taking her to the dentist, or to the doctor. They became quite close, talking every day. For Elizabeth Phillips, it was like watching May Jane grow up all over again. Elizabeth dreaded the day that Christine was going to ask what happened to her mom. For years, knowing that May Jane was in heaven had been enough, but the day came when Christine needed to know more. Elizabeth told Christine everything, that May Jane had been murdered, had taken weeks to find her body, about her drug use, and the sex work. Over the years, Elizabeth closely followed the investigation, going to the coroner at the morgue herself. Had May Jane been high when she died? hoping that she had not suffered. But no, a very small amount of drugs was found in Mayjay's system. Elizabeth wondered if she'd been trying to sober up when she lost her life. By the end of 2006, Elizabeth could no longer track the developments in the case. Now Christine scoured the internet, searching for any news, as she studied to be a veterinarian tech. Then, right before Christmas, Christine learned she was pregnant. Somewhat surprised, she was really happy about it. Christmas Day 2006, Christine and her boyfriend went to May Jane's sister's home, opening gifts and enjoying the family gathering. There, with family and friends grinning ear to ear, Christine's boyfriend handed her a little box and got down on one knee. Elated, Christine said yes, she would marry him, but knew in the back of her mind that she recognized again this was another life event she couldn't share with her mom because a twisted serial killer had killed her. He needed to be caught. He needed to pay for taking so much away from her. Two criminal profilers from the FBI, agents Bob Morton and Kirk Melanick, joined the task force for two days, giving advice on what to focus on. They met with the officers who had the most longitudinal knowledge of the old cases Petronic, Rosinski, and Savage. 
We sat down and reviewed the driver motor with them, as well as Yellen. Buffalo detective Dennis Delano, the cold case expert, knew the Mazur case best. He was not, however, an expert on sex crimes. So he called Buffalo PD colleague, Lisa Redmond. Think of her as working on Law and Order SVU, specializing in sex crimes. By the way, I still love that show. I love it. On medical leave, Lisa was asked if she wanted to join the unsolved bike path cases. Yeah, she enthusiastically said, even if she wasn't supposed to be going back to work until January 2007. Recently, two Buffalo PD encountered a teenager with a gun, leaving one of the officers paralyzed. On this particular day was the court appearance of the shooter. Redmond had to be there to show support, so she opted to meet them later in the afternoon, and everybody totally got it. The sit-down with the profilers began going over the four Buffalo rapes. Lissa had joined them by then and went on to explain the Riverside sex assaults, triggering a lot of questions. Was it in a park-like space, they wanted to know. No, not at all. She shared that it was an open field next to an industrial zone, nothing like the bike paths, but it did have an old defunct railroad track running through it. It was a place that only locals would know about. Redmond also updated them on the DNA results. First tested in 1994, the Buffalo Sex Offense Squad, SOS, retested the Riverside Victims Rape Kit in 2004. DNA analysis had become much more sophisticated in 10 years, but they were able to determine a genetic match with just a Y chromosome. There was no doubt that she was a bike path killer victim. An additional piece of information came clear. Somewhere between killing May Jane Mazur and raping the student, the bike path killer lost his ability to make sperm. So he'd either had a vasectomy, suffered some testicular cancer, or some other kind of ailment that affected his fertility. Maybe someone yanked his testicles off. We can only hope. But anyway, sorry, I had to. So after this meeting, what did the FBI profilers come up with? Well, they've learned, one, the 1986 rape was more likely not the first time he'd attacked a woman. It was too well-planned, too sophisticated. He knew exactly what he was doing. These crimes are not easy murder bookies. They do take practice. So the FBI suggested that they look further back in the records to see if there were other unsolved rapes or assaults that have some resemblance to 1986. Two, the bike path killer likely patronized sex workers based on the rape and murder of May Jane Mazur in 1992. Her killing was not an anomaly. There's a very good chance that he used the services of prostitutes before. So check files on Buffalo area Johns. And three, he may not have used the same MO as he's famous for the garage, which he had learned by trial and error and experience. So look back into the files for sexual assaults not using the garage. Do not discount these. His earlier rapes were there to be found. And the task force set out with these new insights. They got a list of anyone in Erie County, especially Buffalo area, who had been arrested for patronizing prostitutes from 1990 to 2000. Delano began digging into old rape cases, but he needed Redmond to do so more effectively. 
Would she officially be joining the task force? She'd agreed to help, not knowing that answer. And Delano was sorting through boxes and boxes of files. These files were filled with high-profile serial crimes, and maybe they held the answers they needed. But when would they have time to get to all of them? Hmm. Bike path rapist victim Susie Coggins was doing okay, despite the constant media bombardment about the case, the DNA test, the task force, new composite sketches being developed, the tip line. Her tight-knit community was checking in on her regularly. There's no secrets in this kind of community. She said she was fine, while all of it drove her crazy. Her mantra, quote, it is behind me, I'm an adult, the mother of two children, end quote. But the peace she thought she had found was melting away. She told her 12-year-old daughter about the rape, but not her 10-year-old son. She didn't want to scare her daughter, but teach her how to avoid dangerous situations. Since they were little, she'd watched as her kids approached strangers. And then she would ask, how did the stranger make you feel? If it was a yucky or scared feeling, she told them to trust their gut. Oh my gosh, she was a murder bookie and didn't even know it. If they encountered someone who made them feel this way, the kids needed to run away. Always trust your gut, murder bookies. I'm sorry if my repeating this gets old, but I just feel so passionately about trying to prevent something awful. This is a little thing that you can do. However, Susie began to sink into depression. Her boyfriend, Barnsley, gently checked on her as she tried to cope. He gave her space and allowed her time to work through her feelings, and she loved him for it. But Susie didn't feel safe. Locking the doors, checking them multiple times, the bike path rapist was still out there. Mid-December 2006, State Police Lieutenant Stephen Negrelli and Josh Keats pulled the looming big metal cabinet over. Big wad of chewing tobacco in his lip. Keats began reading as Negrelli swung his golf club, pondering how to get this guy. Keats pulled a memo written by then-chief of detectives Angelo Alessandro a list of sexual assaults from 1980 to 1994 in Delaware Park. Five rapes, one attempted were listed. There were many things on this spreadsheet that caught Keats' eye. Five assaults took place in the park near the replica of the Michelangelo Statue David, exactly where the bike path killer had struck in 1986. Things said to the victims were similar to those of the bike path rapist. Four victims said the assailant had placed clothing over their heads during the attack. None included a grove. Keats asked McGrawley to review these two, and his comment was, Holy shit! A spot-on FBI. They dragged the filing cabin into the headquarters conference room. On one side, they had a big, white, dry erase board with all the bike path killers' ten attacks detailed out. McGrawley grabbed a pen and started writing next to it. Looking over, he said, quote, Josh, whoever did these, did these, end quote. There was just too much in common. Greg Savage, the sheriff detective, walked in, cool as a cucumber guy, and he recognized this. Quote, oh, that's the Delaware Park rapist, end quote. Greg explained that in 1985, he had just begun with the Erie County Sheriff's Department, and his first assignment was downtown Buffalo. A guy named Anthony Capozzi 
Delaware Park rapist, was prosecuted for these rapes. Savage recalled it was hard to believe this Capozzi guy was capable of being a serial rapist. He, like, locked himself. He said absolutely nothing. All he ever said was he wanted a light. Keats was confused. Capozzi? No, no. No, this is our guy. This is the bike path killer, he told Greg Savage. Savage groaned, quote, That's not good, because I remember Capozzi was arrested for those rapes from 1983 to 1984, end quote. Well, where is he now, asked Keats. Well, I think he's in state prison. Was Capozzi sitting in jail for what the bike path killer had done? The world began to spin. Discovering the Delaware Park rapes opened up a new avenue for the task force. Al Rosansky began digging through the metal file boxes, looking for more information on the Capozzi case, piecing together what had happened. Throughout the 1990s, Delaware Park had a string of rapes that was causing panic in Buffalo. The park was a beloved landmark. People strolled, walked their dogs, children played, and had enjoyed pleasant days. The park held many versions of Central Park Manhattan's Shakespeare in the Park, too. Almost all the attacks by the Delaware Park rapist took place by Michelangelo's David, very similar to the bike path killer. So how was Anthony Capozzi caught and convicted? Well, William Byers, a former police officer turned city official, saw a suspicious-looking man by a Perkins restaurant on Delaware Avenue, not far from the park. And he recognized him, having seen him in Delaware Park the day before the July 18, 1984 rape. Several months later, Byers saw him again by the Perkins restaurant, but lost track of him. Third time he saw the man was September 11, 1985, and he followed him and got his license plate. This was traced to Anthony Capozzi. His photo was included in a photo array, and a victim identified him as her rapist. He was arrested on September 13th. Suppose he was 29, from a tight-knit Italian-American family, about 5'8", with dark hair and a thick mustache, with a three-inch scar on his forehead. As a teenager, he'd been diagnosed with schizophrenia, which grew worse as he got older. His family knew that he found comfort in taking long walks in Delaware Park, but they were stunned senseless when he was arrested, and arrested for rape. Three of the women brought in to view the lineups identified Capozzi as the man who raped them. In addition to the first woman, there was a 1983 victim taking a walk through the park to get to a bus stop, and the July 1984 jogger who was running around Hoyt Lake. The Capozzi's couldn't raise the $50,000 bail money, so Anthony remained in jail. Lawyers Thomas C. D'Agostino and Robert Schreck filed a zillion motions, including one to quash the lineup identification, arguing that the decoys looked nothing like Capozzi, but a judge dismissed their efforts. Since DNA wasn't really a thing in the 1980s, there was little scientific evidence to turn to. They did know that the blood type of the rapist was a negative, and Capozzi was O as well. While Anthony sat in jail, another rape occurred on July 12, 1976, at 9 a.m., Near the David statue, the victim, a female jogger. Gee, you'd think that would lead to some questions, right? But no, this rape was different. The attacker had used a rope around the neck. Different MO, so therefore it was irrelevant. Only Capozzi's lawyer questioned. If the rapist was in jail, how had another rape occurred at the park near the David statue? 
Assistant Attorney General DiTulio prosecuted Kaposi. The three rape victims took the stand and identified Anthony as their rapist. Interestingly, none of the victims remarked about the scar Anthony had on his forehead. That seemed like a glaring omission. Also, the victims had said the assailant was 40 to 50 pounds heavier than Anthony. But in the end, Anthony Kaposi was convicted of the two 1984 rapes and acquitted on the December rape. His mother wept bitter tears as the verdict was read. He was sentenced to 11 and two-thirds to 35 years in prison and sent to Attica Correctional Facility, made famous by the riot there by inmates and the bloody retaking by state police in 1971. Meanwhile, the Bike Path Killer Task Force kept plugging away at the Pocosi case. After determining all the GPS coordinates for the 10 victims, Rosansky looked at the investigative team. We gotta go. He meant to Attica. Kaposi was brought in to see them, a meek-looking man who wasn't very interested in them. Quote, were you ever in Delaware Park? Rosansky asked him. Yep, yep, I know where Delaware Park is. End quote. The detectives were stunned. Clearly this man was mentally disabled. Quote, did you ever hurt anyone? Rosansky pressed. I never hurt anybody. I play frisbee. I play frisbee. I have sisters. I wouldn't hurt any girl. I wouldn't hurt any girl. Can I go now? It's spaghetti night. End quote. Rosansky, Petronic, and Savage left Attica in a state of shock. There was no way Kaposi was capable of the calculated rapes he's been convicted of over 20 years earlier. Rosansky couldn't stop himself as the tears began to flow. Quote, do you really think that guy is capable of hurting anyone? End quote. In Amherst, the men shared the information they had from Kaposi, feeling like absolute shit on Friday night before Christmas Day. The task force brought in the DNA guys, Dr. John Shimmix and Paul Mazur. For four to five years, they had said there was a high probability that this guy was of Latin descent, but they wanted to hear it from Dr. Simich himself. Josh Keats asked, quote, Can I throw out every tip about a guy named Popolowski? I mean, would it be a good investigative move to take all Hispanics and go through them and eliminate them? End quote. Thinking, Dr. Simich nodded, quote, Yeah, that's probably not a bad idea. End quote. Remember, this matches with the victim's description of him being either Italian or Mexican. Diving into all the pages and pages of data, hundreds of suspects from the Amherst Binders, everyone with a Hispanic-sounding name was flagged. Once the list was developed, Joss Keats went to Betsy Snyder, the state police crime analyst, for help. Betsy was not a cop. She had worked for a marketing company before moving to the state police. She was the expert on researching dozens of databases available to law enforcement. Describing her role to the authors, Betsy said, quote, Basically, the main thing I was offering the task force was to take some of the research load off their plate so they could be freed up to go out and do interviews. They'd get a tip from an individual and run it back to me, and I'd get a criminal history, end quote. Negrelli viewed Betsy Schneider as the task force's secret weapon. He said she, quote, was helping to connect the dots. We were going out and doing the interviews, but she was the funnel. She was the choke point. Betsy saw it all, end quote. Keats pulled 81 Hispanic-sounding names, 
were somehow connected to the investigation. Next was reviewing all the files connected to those 81 men to see what leads Amherst had on them and why they'd been eliminated as suspects. They began at each end of the alphabet. Betsy came across one S name. It had 24 entries associated with it. Sanchez Altimio C. Schneider was transfixed, especially over the interview that Bob Bandish, a co-worker of Sanchez's at American Brass, had given. Two weeks after Linda Rowland's murder, Bandish had called the Amherst PD. It had taken two weeks for Bob Bandish to summon the courage to actually call the police. Al Sanchez was a guy he golfed with, a jitney driver, one of the nicest guys at the American Brass Plant where he worked. They also went to a Valley Total Fitness Center together, a perk from their company. Both Bandish and Sanchez worked the same third shift, working in a copper mine delivering metal to various parts of the plant. Bandish was driving home from work on August 24, 1989, looked up, and saw Sanchez driving by him on the Lockport Expressway, the interstate highway, that ringed Buffalo. Bob wondered if Al was going to turn off at Sweet Home Road and hit the club. He knew Al lived in the opposite direction, so it was odd for him driving in this direction. But, you know, the thought faded away. Later that day, a 14-year-old girl was raped on the Willow Ridge bike path. A year later, in September 1990, Bandish was riding his bike after work along the Ellencott Creek Trailway. Quote, I remember it was a beautiful day. I was thinking it was in the early afternoon. And hey, here comes Al. So I stopped the bike and we were shooting the shit. End quote. Sanchez was wearing a jogging suit with an American brass baseball cap. Quote, Al, what are you doing here? End quote. Bandish asked him. Ah, well, my wife, she's taking a class at Buffalo State, end quote. Weird, thought Bob. Buffalo State College is 30 minutes from here. I mean, why would he be all the way here in Amherst? Bandish returned to the bike path on September 30th for a short ride before dropping his son off to play football. Quote, we come back from the game and right at Sweet Home in the bike path. Man, there's a ton of Amherst cops all over the place. Something big went down. End quote. The next day, the news was full of the Linda Yallam murder, plus a composite drawing of the suspect who raped a 14-year-old girl the day he'd seen Sanchez driving on the Lockport Expressway. To Bob, the composite resembled Sanchez. The next day at work, Bob discussed it with friends at the plant, who agreed the sketch looked like Al Sanchez. Bandish's friends had a hard time believing Sanchez could have raped and killed anyone, though. He was the nicest guy. Should Bob tell anyone? Bob was conflicted. Quote, you hate to ruin a guy's life, put him under suspicion if you're wrong. But on the other hand, if this is the guy who's doing it, then you gotta do what you gotta do. End quote. I get it, Bob. I agree with you. Snyder and Keats were now reading about this call when Bob spoke to police officer David Speranzo on the Amherst tip line for the Yellen killing. Bob said he'd seen Sanchez the day the 14-year-old was raped and saw him again on the Ellencott Creek bike path the day before Linda Yellen was killed. Amherst Captain Thomas Gould turned the tip over to two detectives, Joseph Siliberto and Robert Fuller, to follow up. They drove down to Bandish's house, but he wasn't home. They called later, and they were told by Mrs. Bandish 
come back because he was working the night shift and had gone to bed. Fuller and Silberto found Al Sanchez's address and drove out to check his house. A car in the driveway was a blue Pontiac Grand Am, which matched the description of a woman who had called in a tip about a blue car near the bike path the day Yallen was murdered. Though she had said it was a Dodge, which is understandable because back in the 80s, Pontiac and Dodge were really very, very similar, identical under the hood, but with minor cosmetic differences. The College Park permit in the Pontiac window was registered to Kathy Sanchez. It was January 31st when the two detectives, Ray Nitsche and Thomas Kenny, called and asked Al Sanchez to come in for an interview. He agreed. Sanchez denied he'd ever been on the Amherst path. He had no problem with them checking his work schedule at American Brass, and he gave them fingerprints. Records show a month later, Detective Kenny went to American Brass and did look over Sanchez's payroll records. On the day Linda Yallen was murdered, Sanchez was scheduled to work four hours of overtime, so he shouldn't have left work until 11.30 a.m. However, he left at 7.30 a.m. without explanation. On May 31, 1990, Sanchez came to work late, and his pay was docked. Intrigued, Nietzsche and Kenny met with the human resource manager, Thomas Cervola, giving him a list of dates for the then seven attacks. Cervola got back to them on March 4th. Altimio Sanchez was not working at the time for any of the seven attacks. Keats and Snyder were dumbstruck. How had they never heard of this guy before? More information came to light from the files. May 23rd, Sanchez's fingerprints were compared to those on a water bottle near the scene of the rape of the 14-year-old. They did not match. That was puzzling to Keith Schneider. There had never been any information about the suspect leaving fingerprints. January 23, 1992, files said that the following suspects had been eliminated and removed from the identity method of operation. 131 people, including Altonio C. Sanchez. There was no explanation. Snyder was now laser-focused on Altonio Sanchez, researching this guy. She ran his DMV records, got addresses where he lived, vehicles in his name. She did a criminal record check and used a curant, a popular research tool for law enforcement and journalists, getting phone numbers, relatives, neighbors, property-owned, bankruptcies, liens. Keats was working on a second list then arrested for patronizing prostitutes, and Redmond was tearing through the old case files in Buffalo. So in spite of Bandish putting Sanchez near the scene of the crime for the 14-year-old rape and the Linda Allen homicide, the similarity of composite drawings, similar-looking car he drove compared to the car a woman had seen near the bike path, and being 100% MIA from work during the assaults, they let him go and eliminated him as a suspect. Bandish realized Sanchez knew he had turned him in, which created a really stressful situation that hurried his retirement due to health problems. Keats and Schneider wanted to know why had Amherst let Sanchez go. January 1st, 2007, Lisa Redman was officially part of the task force. She was excited, quote, this is it. If it's ever going to be solved, it's now. End quote. In January, Rosansky, Savage, Delano, and Petronic were concentrating on the Capozzi case 
finally getting files from the DA's office on January 4th, tracking down his defense attorney, Thomas Diagostino. A 1981 report written by Detective Sergeant Ronald Coyle immediately got Petronic's attention. A Delaware rape victim was also a Buffalo State College student raped near, you're probably going to guess, the David statue. Coyle had filed a warrant for her unknown assailant, and he told the victim to call him if she ever saw the rapist again. She did call Coyle two days later, two days, after seeing a man at the mall with a blonde woman and young child. She followed, jotting down his license plate, 417-TWJ. Coyle traced the car to Wilfredo Caraballo, who lived on Buffalo's west side. In this 1981 report, Coyle wrote, Wilfredo Caballo says his car insurance is expired and the car is in his garage and has not been driven in months. He showed me the car and that checks. Coyle had read Wilfredo his rights, took three pictures of him, and made up a photo array of Puerto Rican males with Caballo's picture among them. But the rape victim said he wasn't the rapist. Coyle closed the file while continuing to check for suspects in blue jogging suits. Now, Rosansky and Petronic realized how valuable this victim was. She had been raped and recognized him two days later in a mall. If anyone could identify this rapist, she could. The DMV provided a photo of Caraballo from about 20 years earlier, as well as his current information. Unfortunately, the Caraballos had moved away long ago. Snyder drew up a new list of homes for the Caraballos. Rosansky and Savage would spend the next few days checking out these locations. It's really not like it isn't on TV, guys. So Rosansky and Savage were chasing down the Caraballo lead while Keats was pursuing Sanchez. Meanwhile, Schneider has exciting news. She compared the list of Hispanic last names with the men who had been arrested for patronizing sex workers in Erie County. Two names popped up, a man who was already in jail and Altimio C. Sanchez. Keats urged Schneider to keep digging on Sanchez. Her next conversation was with an agent from the Social Security Administration wanting info on Sanchez and Wilfredo Caraballo, faxing her questions. Rosansky was thinking Caraballo might be the guy. He fit the profile, he looked like the composite sketch of the killer, although he seemed a little older than the victims had indicated. A relative associated with Caraballo was a woman named Margarita Torres, who might be Caraballo's sister. Learning she worked at the Youngville College, Rosansky found her on campus. The DMV photo of him, Margarita Torres wasn't sure if it was Caraballo. Well, that's a little suspicious. You don't recognize your own brother? Hmm. Asking her again, she looked again and said she thought maybe he'd moved back to Puerto Rico, but she wasn't sure. Hmm. Margarita, what are you doing? What are you doing? So, Rosansky and Petronic went to find another relative, another brother, named Herberto Sanchez Caraballo. Well, thought Pickens. They told Herberto that they were trying to clear Wilfredo Caraballo as a suspect in crime. And to do so, they needed a DNA sample from the family. <laughs> to their shock and relief, Herberto agreed. They left their cards with Herberto, 
Would he pass this number on to Wilfredo? And again, he agreed. Sure. Now, Betsy Schneider called when she received his response from Social Security. Sanchez's mother was Luz Caraballo. Altimio had been born in Puerto Rico, which fit with the Hispanic DNA profile they had. Schneider was 99% sure that Caraballo and Sanchez were related. Then, Wilfredo Caraballo called Luzinski. Wilfredo said, quote, You're looking for me? Is this about the thing from a few years ago? End quote. The thing, thought Luzinski. Well, not about to stop Wilfredo, he replied, quote, Yeah, yeah, go ahead and talk to me. End quote. And Wilfredo began talking. Quote, I not drive the car. My nephew, Altimio, drive the car. End quote. And Rizansky replied, uh, did you ever tell the police that? And Caraballo answered, I don't remember. So excitement overload. The nephew, Altimio, was driving the car. So Rizansky now believes that Altimio Sanchez was the bike path rapist. But they needed proof, not theories. They needed to speak to Sanchez. They needed a plan. They could not mess up the arrest or see another woman killed, so it had to be airtight. Simultaneously, Dr. Simich was given Roberto's DNA to process a priority job. In 24 hours, they'd know if Roberto was a relation to the bike path killer. The FBI profilers had said the bike path killer likely solicited sex workers. Thus, the task force looked into Sanchez's record regarding prostitution. He'd been arrested twice, in Buffalo in 1991 and again in 1999. The first report uncovered was from the September 23, 1999 incident. At 10.45 p.m., Altimio was arrested in the 1996 Ford van when he propositioned an undercover officer. The first report was from May 1990, occurred on Virginia Street, a few blocks from where May Jane Mazur's last been seen alive. He pulled over, asked the woman standing there if she wanted some action. Being receptive, she asked what he wanted to do. Sanchez suggested a fuck. After negotiating the price, the undercover officer signaled the team he was arrested. He was driving a white four-door Pontiac, which matched what Mazur's pimp had told the police about seeing her get into a white car. Kathy Sanchez, his wife, was on the registration. And then the next day, Roberto's DNA swab came back. Dr. Simich told them, quote, Statistically speaking, the sample you submitted has a familiar relationship to the bike path killer, usually found in a first cousin or an uncle. End quote. Snap! Altimio C. Sanchez was the guy. So who is this guy? Who is Altimio Sanchez? Sanchez moved to the mainland USA in 1960 from Puerto Rico. His migration was prefaced by Sanchez's mother catching his father in bed with a prostitute when Altimio was two years old. Luz Sanchez left her husband, packed up the four kids, and moved to Miami and then to New York City. They lived out of Luz's boyfriend's van for a year. They made their way to Buffalo, which had plenty of migrant work available. Altimio later told investigators that his mother was a heavy drinker who'd slide into a stupor that could last for days. 
The boyfriend regularly beat her and sexually abused Alcineo for years, although he couldn't recall the man's name. They also moved every year from one cramped apartment to another. So this was really difficult life, and I can really feel for Altinia, the boy who was enduring this and abused. Elizabeth Fidelis recalled the family well. Quote, the mom was always on welfare. She didn't have a job. The two sisters were very well behaved. End quote. Fidelis recalled an uncle falling for a woman who didn't want him. He came into her father's shop and said he was buying groceries, went back to his apartment across the street, and killed himself. Another uncle was a weirdo who picked up soda bottles for deposits, and he was nicknamed Pumpkinhead. Eventually, Luz Sanchez sobered up, became Pentecostal, attending church every day with her brood. Sanchez later told police, quote, I guess she was the best mom I could imagine, but I had a lot of difficulties when I was growing up. She got beaten by all her boyfriends, and I witnessed it. It caused anger inside me. A couple of times, she took her anger out on me, hitting me when I was young, end quote. When a junior in high school, his mother told him she had tried to abort him when she was pregnant. Quote, I love my mother, but it was just the way she made me feel, like we never had a real mother-son relationship. She took her church more seriously than watching her son play sports, end quote. As a teen, Sanchez had developed into a very good baseball player at Grover Cleveland High School. Not a great student, he was socially inept, and he never had a girlfriend until after graduation in 1977. He enrolled in an industrial arts program at Buffalo State College. There, he met his future wife, Kathleen Whitley. Pregnant, they married, Sanchez dropped out of college, and got a job at the factory. Kathy Sanchez was the light of his life, bright, energetic, life of the party, and she loved Altinia. Excited, the task force members began working on a plan for capture and arrest. One, Sanchez had to be under 24-hour surveillance, no chance of him slipping away or hurting anybody else. In unmarked cars, two officers were assigned the task of watching Altinio Sanchez. The one right near Sanchez's house was the eyeball. The other down the end of the street was the tail car. Both officers worked together, sharing where Sanchez was, using cell phones and radios to keep in touch. McGrally also approved the use of a GPS unit called the cue ball, which they hid in Sanchez's car. Two, they needed Sanchez's DNA to have an irrefutable case. They hoped he'd throw away a tissue, but Monan suggested that they try the toothbrush charity stunt again. No, 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 too risky, everybody said at the same time. Schneider located a document on Sanchez, his expired gun permit. So no longer allowed to have a gun after his two convictions, this could give them an excuse to knock on his door and recover his gun. Maybe there'd be trace evidence on the trigger. Of course, the downside was Sanchez with a gun standing before them, a guy who'd killed three people. Like, what could go wrong? January 11th, two sheriff detectives went to get Sanchez's gun, hopefully after making him cock it a few times, making sure it was unloaded, and then he'd leave his DNA on the weapon. Knocking on his door, they explained they were rounding up guns from people with expired permits, and he totally bought it surrendering his gun to the detectives after cocking it like they wanted. Rushing to the lab, Dr. Simich got right to work 
and a day later they learned there was no DNA on the gun. All right, so they needed to try something else. Back to surveillance. Maybe they'd get a chance to grab something and be eaten or drank from. Oh, God, the frustration. Chris Weber and Josh Keats were in one car. Ed Monin and Al Rosinski were in the other. And no one believed that Monin and Rosinski surveilling Solo was going to be a problem, of course, until it became a problem. Kathy and Antonio Sanchez drove past them. Caught off guard, they followed, notifying the bosses. Sanchez's drove to Williamsville, parking near a popular gift shop. They stayed there about 10 minutes and then started to move again, driving to Clarence. They stopped again at a butcher shop, but didn't get out with a light coming on in the car like they were reading something. The Sanchez's turned the car around and headed to Seoul, a trendy restaurant that featured Latin-inspired entrees. Rosansky was not a happy camper. Jewish, this was Saturday night, the Sabbath. His sister was visiting from out of town, and here he's sitting here watching the guys. With apologies and an inadequate explanation, he knew he had a job to do. Meanwhile, the Sanchez's settled down to a lovely dinner as Rosansky and Monin took a seat at the bar. They were joined by their relief surveillance team, Amherst officer Mike Rose and Greg Savage. Monin spoke to the manager, Rebecca Clock, explaining the situation that these customers were part of an investigation. With Clock's assistance, they collected the glasses, silverware, and napkins after the Sanchez's left, hoping to get the DNA sample. Greg tailed the couple as they left, and the other diners were shocked when the police swooped in, scooping up the dinnerware. One woman knew Al Sanchez had recognized him and Kathy that night and called her friend, remember Elizabeth Fidelis, to tell her the surprising story of what she'd seen. Neither had any idea why the police were interested in Antonio Sanchez, but it seemed serious. The dinnerware was taken directly to Dr. Simich's lab as Rosansky rushed home to make amends with his family. But the Sanchez's were still enjoying their Saturday night. Greg Savage and Mike Rose followed the Sanchez's to the Borders Bookstore. Oh, the hours and hours that I could spend at Borders Bookstore. I loved that place. Al Sanchez headed to the cookbook section, sitting on the floor and examining Spanish cookbooks. An hour or so later, he met up with Kathy, going to the cafe to order some coffee. Savage snuck into the kitchen, telling the waitstaff not to touch the Sanchez cups, and they agreed. Finished, Al and Kathy got up to leave, heading out the door, and chucked their empty cups into the trash can before getting in the car. The detectives carefully retrieved the cups, which were rushed back to Simmage 2, who promised to have answers by 5 p.m. Savage and Rose kept following the Sanchez car. Can you imagine the slow passage of time while waiting on this? The nerve-wracking torture? I mean, I'm terrible at waiting anyway, like watching water boiling. Oh, my God, it just puts me right on edge. So if they have Altimio Sanchez's DNA, even one drop, they might have proof beyond a shadow of a doubt that he was the bike path killer. At Task Force headquarters, Petronic was pacing. So were Monin, Redmond, and Lacourt. McGrawley was back to swinging his golf clubs. They had been disappointed so many times, 
keeping their hopes up was a double-edged sword. As 5 p.m. neared, the task force quietly gathered in the conference room. It all came down to one test. Precisely at 5 p.m., the phone rang, and it was Dr. Sinich, a man of his word. You've got your man, was the happiest sentence anyone had spoken to the weary law enforcement officers in a long, long time. They were elated, cheering, and whooping it up. The strongest DNA was on the napkin, then the cup from Borders, and the glassware from the restaurant. Now, all they had to do, all they had to do, was arrest Sanchez. But how? By working out a plan with Assistant DA Ken Chase, it was decided to grab Sanchez as he was coming home from working the night shift on Monday morning. Few slept Sunday night with the arrest weighing on their minds. Just after 8 a.m., three cars followed Sanchez as he left work. Instead of going home, Sanchez seemed to be driving towards Amherst. They would later learn he had a doctor's appointment, having had shoulder surgery recently. Yeah, I wonder if he was injured struggling with Joan Diver, who had fought him so hard, huh? Back in his car, Sanchez did not get on Interstate 290, the quick way home. He meandered around, drove past Delaware Park. Was he trolling for a victim? Right, he eventually wound up in his old neighborhood. It was Martin Luther King Jr. Day in January, and it was beginning to get icy. Negrelli made the decision to take him into custody. The car lights came on, pulled him over. Sir, we need to talk to you, said Rosansky. He cuffed Sanchez, put him in the back of the car, and Sanchez did not ask why she was being arrested. How peculiar. With Sanchez in custody, Lisa Redmond and Chris Weber intercepted Kathy Sanchez getting into her car. She was extremely confused and scared. Since it was getting icy, Redmond suggested they get out of the weather, and Kathy Sanchez invited them inside. Never easy to inform the family, Kathy was told, quote, We believe your husband is the bike path killer, end quote. The world fell away. No, that, that cannot be, gasped Kathy. Well, you need to tell us why it can't be, came the response. Asked if they could search her house, even though they had a warrant, Kathy agreed, signing the consent forms, thinking this was one surreal mistake. Back at the Amherst PD, Redmond and Weber would spend the next nine hours questioning Kathy. They went over the Sanchez's timeline, their meeting, marriage, births, jobs, trips. They began to explain what her husband was charged with, and she became very frightened. She did admit she had heard some of this before. He'd already been questioned about the bike path killer case several years back by an Amherst officer, but there was nothing to it. It wasn't him. They delved into her sex life with her husband. In spite of being embarrassed, Kathy remained cooperative. Did he get rough with her? Choke her during sex? No, no, no. Had he had a vasectomy? Kathy Sanchez confirmed he had. She told them that she was aware that Al had been arrested for picking up a prostitute, but she hadn't known about the second arrest. Weber concluded that she was a nice lady who had no idea what her husband was doing. Kathy also received phone calls from her sons, Michael and Christopher. With Chris in San Diego, Mike came down to speak directly with the police who laid out the case. Quote, wait a minute. You're telling me my father's DNA was found in those girls? End quote. 
Weber confirmed this. Michael looked at his mother, quote, he's fucked, he's screwed, mom, end quote. Kathy did not want to hear this. The family called a lawyer for Al. Michael Sanchez's girlfriend worked for local lawyer for William Matar, who specialized in car injury cases. Quote, heard in a car? Called William Matar, end quote. Reminds me of Better Call Saul. Matar referred to Sanchez's to local defense attorney, Andrew C. Lotiempo. On the ride to the sheriff's office, Ed Monin struck up a conversation with Al Sanchez about golf to get him talking. Taken into an interview room, Sanchez became face-to-face with the most experienced interrogators, McCarthy and Monin. After reading Sanchez's rights, he was told they have DNA. Quote, it's over. You don't have anywhere to go. We want your side of this. We want to give you a chance. End quote. Sanchez denied everything. I'm telling you, I'm not the one. Monin laid his cards on the table. Quote, we don't need to get anything from you. We have DNA evidence. End quote. Sanchez played dumb. Monin explained that they had DNA from the Seoul restaurant, while the rest of the task force was locked on the monitor watching this unfold. A.G. Case remarked to Delano, quote, you are not going to convince Altemio Sanchez that he's not driving this bus. He's a very controlling, manipulative person, end quote. Oh, so true. Sanchez's need to control was the huge factor in all of these crimes. Hours passed. Sanchez really seemed to believe that he was going to walk away from this, just as he had when the Buffalo PD had questioned his uncle about the car that he'd used to go to the mall when spotted by the victim. Four hours in, Sanchez lost his cool. Quote, you're going to arrest me. Do it now. Call my wife and explain it to her. Go ahead. Bazanski told him, I'm just trying to figure out why you did it. And Sanchez replied, I'm trying to figure out the same thing myself. End quote. Whoa, did he actually mean that? Had the mask slipped? I think it had. Ever had a vasectomy? Bazanski asked. No, said Sanchez. Never? No, he repeated. McCarthy spoke up. They just talked to your wife, and she told them you had a vasectomy in 93, end quote. I'm telling you right now, I never had a vasectomy. The wife said you did. Then bring my wife in. But eventually, Sanchez realizes that it was no use holding out if Kathy had already told them he had a vasectomy. So he finally admitted that he had had a vasectomy. Quote, I never tell people that. It's an embarrassing thing, end quote. Well, I guess rape and murder is okay, but vasectomy is way too personal. All right, at 5 p.m., Josh Keats took over. After interviewing Kathy Sanchez all day, Lisa Redman arrived in Buffalo to speak with Al Sanchez herself. She joined Josh in the interrogation room. Josh began working the Catholic Church aspect knowing Sanchez attended St. Aloysius. Sanchez was suspicious of Redmond at first, who thought she might be a psychologist until she showed him her badge. Her background in sex crimes would come in handy. Redmond understood that the sex offender mindset was to see themselves as good people, quote, with a demon inside that they cannot control, and it comes out. It's their pent-up motive, their need to control, to hurt but they seem perfectly normal the rest of the time. A lot of times with pedophiles, you find they are the nicest people. 
How else could they get a child to trust them? There's some big, scary, nasty person. No child would come within 10 feet of them. So they have to have a kind and gentle persona to gain that trust. Sex offenders also do. Someone looks perfectly normal. who can walk out of the crime scene and the police wouldn't grab him. It's a detachment from the victims. He can love his wife, love his kids. He can do everything for everyone. Detached from the victims, he does all these horrendous things, but they don't view themselves as bad guys, end quote. Redmond used this to bring out Sanchez, playing the I may do bad things, but I'm not a bad guy card, to give him an out. Then a big bell went off in her head, quote, You don't believe we have your DNA, do you? End quote. She asked Sanchez, well, that's what you say. Eight hours in, Sanchez had given up nothing. Negrali was pulling the plug. It's a wrap. Sanchez stood up, smug. He thought he'd beaten the cops again, just like in 1990. Negrali lost his temper. Quote, you're not going anywhere. You're never going home. You're going to jail for the rest of your life. We weren't lying, end quote, as Negrali walked out. A startled Sanchez turned ashen as he was handcuffed. The 30-year charade was over. Due to the statute of limitations, Sanchez wasn't being charged with any of the rapes. I know, it's really, really frustrating. It's infuriating. The law did change that summer of 2006, but it was not retroactive back to 1981. Sanchez was being charged with the murders of Yalom, and Mazur with the grand jury convening for the Joan Diver murder. In Buffalo, locked up in Lake Erie Holding Center, they decided that Sanchez would have to make the walk of shame through the press, all chomping at the bit for photos and videos of the handcuffed Sanchez being walked to jail. Every agency involved in the bike path rapist killer case attended. Becker and D.B. write that, quote, Sanchez slowly walked through the honor guard of officers Flashes went off in rapid succession. Sanchez looked numb. He was placed in the high-risk unit in the same area where Anthony Capozzi had been locked up for 25 years, except this time the right guy was behind the bars, end quote. And that is it for Episode 35, Tip the Scales, The Bike Path Murder by Mackie Becker and Michael Beebe. Be sure to read the book. It is not possible for me to cover all the twists and turns that the authors have delved into, and I hate cutting out parts. Read the book. You will love it as much as I did. And next episode is a dilly. My choice for our next book is Unsolved, the John Bonet murder 25 years later by Paula Woodward. After the murder of John Bonet Ramsey, rumors and misinformation planted by Boulder, Colorado law enforcement sped across the nation and the world. Suspicion immediately fell on the family as police sought to exploit her death in the media. Prosecutors, law enforcement, intentionally manipulated existing evidence and ignored inconvenient evidence. Paula Woodward is one of the few journalists who reported the family side of the story. She is still investigating the 25-year conspiracy to convict John and Patsy Ramsey by law enforcement, who acted with arrogance, insecurity, and incompetence. She includes new interviews with John Ramsey, his wife Jan, and son John Andrew, who speak with stunning candor. Interwoven throughout the book is expert commentary on what the actual evidence shows. 
Thank you for listening. Please leave a five-star review and buy me a coffee if you can. Both will really help grow the podcast and make new murder bookies. Reach out to me on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. Shoot me an email at jill at merchshelfbookclub.com. I would love to hear from you. Follow me or subscribe to my show at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Podbean, wherever you listen to podcasts. Let my episodes pop right into your feed. Until next time, murder bookies, happy reading. Trust your gut. Source material and snack and drink information for the Bike Path Killer Trilogy is found on my blog. Written and produced by Jill, all rights reserved. Music by Carl Hosenna and lyrics by Otto Harbaugh.